It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day and welcome, listeners, to The Two Jacks, episode 53, where we look at matters in Australia and then go around the world. We've got quite a lot of world news, actions in South America, etc., some very strange results there, and lots of things to look at. And well, and joining me as usual is Jim Hong Kong. Jack. How are you, mate? And as an immigration lawyer, you would have been paying plenty of attention. We we touched on this in a previous episode. We more than touched on it. We did a fairly detailed analysis of it, or you did, of the High Court ruling that has basically said no indefinite detention uh, in Australia, including those who have sought protection as UGs, Jack. Um, it's caused quite a caused quite a political frenzy in Canberra with cries from the opposition to do something and then Claire O'Neill has done something and legislation is being introduced. But what you said last week, Jack, was that it was very, very difficult to, to, to legislate if they were not if they had not yet received the High Court's reasons for their judgment. They've only received the judgment, but not the reasons for it. And that remains the case. Yeah, uh, what they've legislated for is just to allow um, further monitoring and, and detention of a, a few people, I think is the answer. Um, but, but they haven't addressed the, the wider issues that the court will, that the case will, will, will bring. There's been a lot of talk about this, about whether the government should have known this was happening and foreseen it. And, you know, various litigation lawyers uh, are, are jumping on the net to say, you know, I'm an experienced litigation lawyer and we always prepare contingency plan for clients. It's got nothing to do with echo chambers and everything to do with being prudent and responsible. The problem with that is that this was a case where um, the, the, it was only on in, in June that a single judge of the High Court sent the thing to the full court for determination. Um, the submissions were made in September and October, and the hearing was on the 7th of November and the 8th of November, and at the end of the 8th of November, the full court adjourned for about 15 minutes and came back and handed down a decision, handed down orders. A majority, majority decision, wasn't it? Yeah. Obviously, a majority decision, but there, but there were there were a, was it one or two high court judges that have, that pair of majority. Uh, we, we don't know that. We we, we really won't know that until until we get the reasons. Um, but they were satisfied that there was at least in the in the words of the chief justice, there was at least a majority. So they they handed down the orders immediately. This is very unusual. You wouldn't you don't normally expect to go to the hawk. High Court have a hearing and get a result the same day. What's that mean? The, uh, the castle was all a bit of smoke yeah, and mirrors. It was. I mean, I mean, it has happened, but it, it's it's very rare. So I can see why the government didn't have a fixed view about whether they were going to succeed or not after before the hearings were took place. Well, there's been a lot of mad panic about this and some fairly hysterical sort of claims. Susan Lee probably led the charge there. There are some fairly dangerous people, potentially dangerous people in that 
group of 33. Immigration Minister Andrew Giles said there were three murderers in the group of 93. Um, there, there's another one who is facing the potential death penalty if 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 found guilty in a Malaysian court if he was deported. Uh, and that's something we touched on last week. That's not something the Australian government would come at. And then there are there are people who do just with traffic offences. But there's a, you know there's been a focus on the murderers and rapists, Jack. But the fact of the matter is murderers and rapists walk among us after they've been convicted and jailed. And, uh, and then released. Yes, that's correct. So a bit of bit of hyperbole there. In, in the case of a Malaysian chap, he hasn't been arrested or, or tried in Malaysia, and nor, nor, nor no, has he done the time. He's not one of the three murderers, yeah, I yeah. presume. If we are going to talk about murderers, they've got to be convicted murderers, don't they? That, that's right. So he's facing a trial with the likelihood, if found guilty, of, of facing the death penalty. So the Australian government wouldn't come at that. We, we mentioned the politics on this last week and in, in, in last week's show, and you said that the, the government had probably not got its communications right, which is a fair point, I think. Um, but in the end, were they forced into a sort of panicky response from the opposition? Yes. That's that, that's my reading of the politics of it. Uh, the law, the law of it, you know, time will tell with that. Um, there won't be any lasting solution until um, the government gets to see the reason. But the politics of it, they were caught very flat-footed. Yes. Well, the Minister for Home Affairs, Mr O'Neill, said the Commonwealth had lost a case that was so significant it does need the Commonwealth to rethink the management of immigration yep. detention and we will work through that. Once the court releases the reasons for its decision early next year, she goes on to say, we wanted to keep these people in detention because I do not want people like this walking the streets of our country. We've sort of touched on that. Uh, the Minister defended the handling of the decision, stating the government had not known back in June, as the opposition has suggested, that an adverse decision was likely. And that seems to be the case from what you've told us, Jack. But at the same time, not getting on the front foot, not getting the comms right, uh, the communications right, settling down the, the, the debate about this before, but before the, the opposition sort of creates a bit of a furor. That seems to be their failing in this case. It, but these, these are difficult, legally speaking, these are difficult cases because there's a whole range of people involved. But up to 340, I think, might be caught up in, in a change of law. Um, and no one in government wants to be seen to be uh, allowing people to stay in the country um, without good reason, you know? Yeah, no one's going to sign up to that. No one no, no one with their hands on the levers of power will sign up for that. People in opposition might, but they won't when they get into government. Well, what you suggested last week was that it's very likely that the High Court will not come at indefinite detention at all, no matter how the legislation is, is, uh, is worded. And if that remains the case, shouldn't the government be dealing with that, getting getting into the getting that into those communications to the community, uh, to the broader Australian community, that there is a problem that needs to be. Yeah, I, I, I think I think I think I said last week more transparency would be good. Explaining the situation better would be good, and they still haven't done that. I mean, what the High Court think is going to say is that where there is no prospect of resettlement somewhere or the person being removed back to their former car, then where there is no prospect, no future prospect, that they can go somewhere else and they can't be kept in detention. 
so uh, someone in perhaps Syria, for example, yeah. someone who come from Syria, for example, and cannot be returned to that country, any indeed any country where they are likely to be persecuted, is that is that is that the feel of it? So if you that, that basically over a period of time you could say, well, we can't we can't deport that person, but, so therefore that person must stay in indefinite but, detention but, for well. They tend to talk in in terms of no immediate prospect, you know. So that you know, the, the, nothing on the horizon suggests that there's going to be able to be a solution found to this. And you know, it's it's not okay. it's the indefiniteness of it. But. Look more broadly. We've got to talk a bit more about politics today, but but more broadly, I, I get the feeling that this is where the government's going wrong a bit, and that they're just not getting out the, uh, on the front foot with their communications at the moment. We've had Airbus, Elbow, and all this sort of tedious stuff. When really we should be looking at, you know, we we, we actually should be applauding a, a, a prime minister for attending, you know, these high high level multilateral discussions, Apex and meetings with Biden and, and, and meetings with the President Xi, uh, these sorts of things. And, and instead we're getting this, or you should be at home solving the problems here. And I just, I, I think that's a failure of communications. However, there are some difficulties. I mean, um, the prime minister and the foreign minister, they can't be sort of talking off the cuff about discussions that they have in private with the leaders of some of the biggest countries in the world. Not often I agree with Kevin Rudd, but Rudd made a good point post the APEC meeting that discussions between leaders generally remain confidential and should. Uh, and that's because you want, to, uh, you want to be able to touch on areas that you don't want the public necessarily knowing all about. If you get, if you go and, if you go and blab, then that, then that person, that, that world leader, whether it's a leader of China, a leader of the United States, whoever, is not going to take you into their confidence again. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. I mean, they're, they're not going to be so comfortable and so frank when they sit down next time. As to managing the communications about it, I noticed, I think it might have been the news.com.au website was getting stuck into Richard Miles for, and the, the Deputy Prime Minister, yes, sure. for having diverted the plane on his way to Delhi to, or, or to Lucknow maybe, to act for the cricket. And I thought that was pretty amusing because uh, Sir Robert Menzies, the Prime Minister for a very long time, 15 or 16 years, used to take a six-week trip on the boat back to London whenever there was an Ashes series on, you know, and and make sure he was there for the at least the Lord's Test and hopefully the Oval one as well. Yeah. Uh, and look, we'll get to the World Cup and Australia's triumph there, but it's something it's something where a senior member of government should have been in it. Yeah, and, and, and he and Miles, and Miles and Penny Wong were going to a bilateral meeting in India, and but the government should have been on the front foot and said, well, given that they were going over there, someone senior from the government should have been there standing beside Prime Minister Modi in the Modi state to hand over the trophy. Yeah, exactly right. And also, I think the government's got a pretty good story to tell uh, in, 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 in improved relations with China, improved relations in the South Pacific. And I would dare, dare, dare to guess that probably our relations with the United States are on a smoother on a smoother trajectory than they were too uh, in the, in the, the, than we saw in the previous government. So I think there's a story to tell there. I mean, I guess the old the old the old adage or the old axiom that uh, there's no votes in foreign policy might might actually work. But yeah, the government's got a good story to tell, and it's just not telling. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I don't always think that good relationships means that the government's going well in foreign policy. What we've got to remember is foreign policy is about our interest. It's not about whether someone else likes us. 
Yeah, exactly right. And uh, but we've got better trading terms now with the Chinese, uh, with the People's Republic of China, and and those are things that our exporters will have you know acknowledged, particularly from the wine business. And you'd lost you'd lost your market. Uh, lobster business, I suppose, too, if you've lost your mark. And, and, and now it's back. I mean, I think there are good stories to tell you. I just don't think they're being told well enough. Penny Wong's a very competent, very competent minister, very competent foreign minister. But I've always felt she's not been a great communicator. Yeah, I think she can. She can communicate quite directly. It's just a question you've got to do the legwork is part of it. With the with the detention cases, yeah, with, with the detention cases, they just didn't get out and say, this is what's happened. Yes, yes, and that's that's not her belly with, by the way. But, but yeah, look, it, it, it is one of those things that I'm finding you know, the Albanese government needs to improve at, needs to get on the front foot, needs to get out and explain things to the people a bit better than they than they actually are. The Mulgrave by-election came and went, Jack. Not very surprising results, I would say. There was a double-digit swing against Labor, but it's not not party time for the Liberals at all in Victoria, is no, it? No, it's not. I mean, too many the, parties, it must be the Mulgrave election is a little bit unusual in that it's the resignation of a Premier, not just an, an ordinary MP. Um, and there was also a, a fairly credible independent who chewed up a fair bit of votes, and it's not entirely clear where those where those he's votes came second. from. Not sure he's I would call him entirely credible, but but he's a bloke who sort of comes in off the sort of freedom movement a bit. But he uh, is local, and he, it looks like he's finished second, and Labor first, and and then the and the coalition third, and and the coalitions while we. Well, the coalition, or sorry, the Victorian Liberal Party made much of the, the swing against the Allen government. Um, their, their primary votes in the doldrums. Yep. And we're going to talk more broadly about this, Jack, because Mulgrave we could see as being a sort of a, 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 a bit of where the next election might be might be uh, might be fought. And I just want to quote from Cosmaris uh, from the was it Red. Group Red, Red, right Red Bridge. They're, they're polar company. Red Bridge, thank you, yeah. He said, the stage is set. The LNP is going to focus on the outer suburbs, and we might include Mulgrave in that, albeit a, a state seat. It's going to be a very difficult road for them, Samara says. A number of the seats on this list display massive volatility, but not a want to switch to blue. For now, teal seats are off the table. We've been talking about this a fair bit, Jack. If the Liberal Party, well, we think they've already coughed on the teal seats. They're never, they're not going to take, they're not going to have a real crack back at you know, getting them back. And then they're going to have a crack at out of Western Sydney seats, out of Eastern Melbourne seats. You look at the outer west, for example, they've got no hope there at all. But that's going to be their focus. This is part of this, you know, sort of mis- miscommunication from Peter Dutton last year when he said that the, the Liberal Party is the party of regional Australia, which it isn't um, very clearly. Um, but that was the first sign that I thought that he was going to have a crack at the outer suburbs. And it's going to be hard. It's going to, I mean, they've got no base there. That's, that's part of the problem. 
Yeah, firstly, I think they will have a crack at the teal sets. I don't think they'll get them or get many of them back, but they'll have a, they will try to. Um, but they perceive, I would imagine, they perceive a weakness for Labor uh, in its heartland, and Labor's Labor's vote has been dropping in uh, its heartland. The seats that used to be sort of um, over the horizon now are within sight. I think they probably won't win too many of them, but they can certainly ramp up their vote in a lot of them. Right. But ramping up, if you do, if you actually look at the the pendulum, and you and, and you get down into some of the bourbon seats that Labor holds by reasonable margins, and and some in the east of Melbourne, not by much at all. You you look at that and go, I don't think you can win enough seats to form government that way. The, the, the strategy of sitting on the suburb, ignoring the cities, and then let's see what happens in the regions. I just can't see how they can win enough seats to form government. That yeah, way. but if, if, if I were advising the opposition, I wouldn't be saying winning government is the only aim you can have. That would be great if, if, if you, for them if they could win government, but the likelihood of that's pretty low uh, to oust a first-term government. So um, what they need to be doing is to, is to start building towards a, a time when they can win government. And if that means picking up votes in the outer suburbs, that's fine. Yeah, I understand that, Jack, but this is what we're talking about. This is actually kind of rebranding the Liberal Party. And there are so many there are so many risks attached to this that they could find themselves voted out of some of their safer seats, and that's already happened, and then find themselves in a battle to, to, to win a sufficient vote in the outer suburbs and find they can't win there either, and they end up with, let's say, 28% of the primary vote, not unlike what happened in Mulgrave, by the way, uh, and get 28% of the primary vote and come back to the parliament with a cricket team. Uh, this is happening all around the world, and, and it's it, it's a, a problem for both sides of politics that they're going to have to address. For the progressive parties, whether it's Labor in, in Australia or in the United Kingdom, um, and, and the Democrats in the United States is that the people who used to be their bedrock support, what we in Australia would call the working class, in America it's called the middle class, but in, what we in Australia call the working class, are abandoning progressive parties and, and they are shifting to conservative, to more conservative parties. Now, this is not peculiar to Australia and every party is going to have a difficult road um, uh, to find their way through um, to, to, to work out just where they fit. What I'm saying is if you have, if the, if you, if the Liberal Party get this badly wrong and, and are reduced to a cricket team in the, in the, in the reps, after the next election, I don't think they've got a future on the political landscape. That's what I'm saying. So you you you, you take these risks, uh, and they can they cannot be, they can can become existential in the end. Yeah, well, and what I'm what I'm saying is they're they're both facing that risk. Oh well, we've seen decline in the primary votes of both parties, significant drops from I don't know. I think the last time the the, the highest point was I think might have been seventy seven, where you know ninety percent of the primary vote was either Labor or Liberal. Uh, mainly Liberal in 77, um, and, and now to the point where they're barely getting 70% of the primary vote, and they got just on 70 last time. I, I, I think that the real, the real problem is not so much that for them, Jack, is, is that, that while Labor have the Greens almost as a buffer, to its left, and it was considered to be that was considered to be an existential threat for the Labor Party, going back a few years ago, coming back a few years now. They have that buffer there. The preferences are all going to flow from Greens to Labor, but when you get out to the right, 
and the Libs are losing their primary vote to, you know, a, a, a raft of small and single-issue parties to its right, those preferences aren't coming back. That's the big problem for them. And so they can't really win an election unless they get a primary vote around about 40%. Uh, well, according to Cosimaras, where Labor's losing its vote, it's going to those same, same smaller parties. That's not preferencing back. That, that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, but yes, that's yeah, happening to Labor right, as well. I, I see what you mean, yes. No, where, it, let's say, you know, it, it goes to the Greens, for example, it's preferencing straight back. Yeah, but what, what, you know, what, what, what Samaras is saying is in, in, a, in, a, in a seat like Broadmeadows, um, you know, certainly working class, Labor's losing its primary vote and it's not losing it to the Greens, it's losing it to these smaller uh, parties on the right, as you put it. Yeah, but they're not preferring those parties, but those voters, not those parties, those voters are not preferencing the Liberal Party. They're not preferencing Labor. So even if you look at One Nation, for example, as a, you know, far right party, let's be honest, and one of the, one of the great misconceptions about electoral behavior is that, is that, that these are sort of unwanted Liberal people who don't vote Liberal anymore, a National Party, LNP, whatever. But you find that One Nation Preferences tend to go about 60-40. So 40% of those preferences go to Labor. And that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. This is the biggest problem they've got. If they, if, if they put all their eggs in the Liberal Party, put all their eggs in this particular basket, basket and don't get those preference flows that they need, then they end up losing seats all over the place because they've got, um, you know, 35% of the vote, let's be kind to them, 35% of the vote that ends up preferencing them up, preferencing up to about 42. Well, as I say, I think this is happening on both sides of politics and that's just, and it's a worldwide, worldwide situation. Um, there's more, much more volatility than we've seen for a very, very long time. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that either. I think there's a constant focus is by people like Samaras. And there, yes, there are changes in demographics that most and voting behaviour, but they've been fairly consistent now for the last 20 or 30 years. What I would say is if for, for, to either major party, if you get these things wrong, tactically you get these things wrong, that can be the end of it. You know, that, that, you know no, no political party in this country is guaranteed a living. And if you get things wrong, you just disappear. All right, David Pembo. I'm going to say Pembo wrote a really good piece about this and um, one of our listeners alerted to me. Um, he said, could seats such as Spence, which is held by held by Labor with a margin of 13%, present an unheralded path to government for the coalition? The margins are so vast it might sound fanciful, says Pembo, but with almost three-quarters of the electorate feeling both irritated and ignored as the voice debate rolled on, perhaps there's an enduring sense of abandonment for the Liberals to think about and Labor for, for Labor to worry about. I don't know whether you read the whole, I don't know whether you read the whole piece, but the, the usual Pembo thing, it was very, very good. Spence is the seat where Labor launched the voice campaign. It's yeah. um, near the car factories out in Elizabeth, the, the north of Adelaide. Um, and uh, despite having the launch there, 70% of voters in Spence, it was the, it, Spence was the highest no vote in the country. Yeah, no, I read the place. Yeah, I just, I, I just think if you get these things wrong, if you, you, you know, if the Liberal Party go to a place where they don't have a base and try and stop up voters and try and get preferences from um, Bs and Fonds and single issue parties around the place and don't get them, then they're in big trouble. And that's what happened in 20. 20- 22 and it 
if we're looking at trends, then they've got a bit of a problem. Yeah. I, I think Pembo's conclusion is wrong for this reason. I think that people are quite capable of distinguishing between how they vote on a referendum and how they vote in an election. Yeah. Um, but he's True. right. There is a high degree of disgruntledness with um, the state of Australia, whether they think Australia's – there was a poll out there in Spence that said, it was Australia going in the, the wrong direction? And it's the same 70% say no, it's going in the wrong direction. So there's a degree of people who are disgruntled. It's very high. That always gives an opposition party some prospect of picking up votes. I don't think they're going to pick up a seat like Spence, but you know this is all to play for. And and and, and yeah, well, we will see swings. We did we did see it in the last federal election, and we did see it in the Victorian that same phenomenon, the Victorian state election, and and we saw a lot of Labor heartland seats with big swings against yep. Labor. But in those battleground, battleground marginal seats, they, they managed to pick them up. So yeah, that's that's the that's that's the problem for the Liberal Party as I see it, that that you know, they've got things horribly wrong in Victoria of course and have for probably the best part of fifteen years. But what happens is if you if if you try and pick these things up, you'll lose the progressive seats that you do have, and then you'll have to battle out for an increasingly small group of marginals, and and, and with your primary vote going nowhere, and that and that's because people aren't preferencing aren't preferencing the liberals. That's the biggest problem they've got. But we'll see. We have various elections. I think Queensland's our next state, our next major election coming for going forward. I think I think we've got the NT and Queensland coming next year, Jack. And we'll see about these things. Your former editor, Chris Mitchell, in the paper, I think it was the, might, have, might have been last week, I drew my attention to something I'd forgotten. But a lot of this stuff about the demise of the Liberal Party was said in 2007 um, after Labor swept to victory. And yet within about three years, they had most of the state governments and were on their way back to a, a federal government as well. So it's unwise, I lots think, at of, times to... to, to lots to, of reasons to, for the 2007 failure when really Labor could have put the Liberals away mm. kind of for good at that time and then they had one of their own naval gazing moments with knives and, and and basically brought down a Prime Minister that you and I may not be huge fans of but the rest of the country is going, well, what are they down there? Why are they doing this? I'm, I'm, you know, we, did, we just vote for this guy to become Prime Minister. I'm saying, what's his name? Hamish McLaughlin and, and, and Ross Stevenson have a, a racing program on the, it appears on the net um, down in Melbourne during the racing carnival. Um, and they have a segment called Going the Early Crow, uh, which means that you, you, you call something a winner too far out from the post. Well, like I say, if you get your strategy, you get your strategies and tactics wrong, there are no T's to keep you alive. Mm. We saw that in the West Australian Liberal Party. We we, if you want to see what happens to parties who ignore their constituencies, it's all, it's there for all to see in Western Australia right now. And there might be a change to that and they might one day hope to make a cricket team in the West Australian from lower house. But if you want to see just exactly what happens if you ignore your constituencies, that Western Australia is there for all to see. So these things have happened, Jack. I mean, the early crow on Western Australia, what would we say about that? That Western Australia would have, the Liberal Party in Western Australia would have two seats in the lower house? Two seats. It's not even party status. That's what happens. That's that's what can go horribly wrong. 
All right, APEC. We did. We just briefly mentioned that Jack APEC was assembled in San Francisco. And, uh, is it true that the big story out of the APEC summit is is about Chinese President Xi and and Elbow? I don't know that it is. Um, is it? To read the Australian papers, you would think so. Well, yeah, just a bit of focus on that. I would have thought that the meetings between Biden and Xi would have, would, would, were far more important. And there was some good news there. I mean, I think both parties handled themselves reasonably well. But, you know, and, and Elbow does say this, but it's absolutely true. Having dialogue is better than not having dialogue. Yeah, generally. Well, I, I thought it was a reasonable performance from Biden. I mean, he was asked, and, and there was some footage. I don't know if you saw it of his secretary of state um, looking a little bit, uh, looking a little bit horrified with what Biden said. Biden was asked, uh, "Do you still still think President Xi is a dictator?" And he said, "Well, yes, he is." And Blinken had to put the hands in the face there, but you know. Yeah, a mate asked me about that and I said, well, look, when I was a young litigation lawyer, we were taught when you're doing jury trials um, to keep a very blank face when things were going against you and when your witnesses were saying things you weren't expecting. Um, You had to look like, well, we were expecting this. This is fine. And and Lincoln Lincoln needed to have learnt that lesson. Well, his body, you know, he should have a talk to Kevin Sheedy about body language. Uh, always got to have the positive body language, Jack. Can't have the head in the hands there while your boss is uh, talking away yeah. in front of a yeah. microphone. Israel and, Israel and Gaza, uh, the war continued. Is there a pause or is there a ceasefire? Uh, neither at the moment. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. There have been calls for a ceasefire, including by our own foreign minister, and this was considered anathema, betrayal. But generally speaking, I think, most Australians, the majority of Australians, want us to stay well and truly out of this conflict. Yeah, the polling, the polling suggests that 70% of Australians uh, want Australia to stay right out of it. I think it's a pretty good conflict to stay well out of. What, what have you made of the claims that um, us uses hospital as, as command posts, essentially? We're still waiting for sort of verification on that. I mean, there, there was a, a lot of stuff coming from the IDF, as we recorded last week, but it doesn't seem to have found a lot of substance. Yeah, that doesn't concern me greatly one way or the other. But it is a, it is a practice, isn't it? I mean, been, Hamas has been doing it <coughs> for a long time, and if I want to use some historical examples, Iraq, when they were invaded, they used to use you know, civilian command posts or command posts within civilian sort of centres to try and deter bombing attacks or win propaganda wars when 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 places like hospitals were attacked. It 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 it, it, it is a habit. It is a practice. But as yet, we haven't seen any really hard evidence. I know there was some footage taken by IDF soldiers. There were you know small arms found and not very much else in these so-called command centres. I would have thought the Israelis would have been very keen to, to get this out there, and certainly they were, but the sort of subsequent evidence and proof that we needed just hasn't arrived. Has now, I don't have a high degree of trust with any of the evidence that's coming out of Gaza. Yeah, um, it's, uh, probably fair, it's, it's probably a fair conclusion. Uh, it, it's, it's my position, and, I, and I've seen... You know what purports to be video evidence of, of rocket launches um, being in the basements of schools and things like that. But I don't I don't know whether that's true or not, and we we won't know for some time. Was telling more lies than who wasn't. Well, we might not know at yeah, all. We, we may that's... never know. That's right. Um, you know, I think there are some losers out of this. I think the un, un, the United Nations organisations uh, have been exposed, in my view, uh, as being completely partisan on, 
on this, that they are no longer good faith actors uh, and they should have nothing to do with Gaza post the end of this conflict. What about Elon Musk's comments this week, Jack? Um, I saw that. I couldn't, couldn't actually work out what he was trying to say, to be quite honest. <laughs> it was a bit, look, uh, it's been portrayed as as a, a, a sort of an anti-Semitic trope that seek to replace white populations. This sort of extreme extreme element there, and 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 he seemed to be sort of endorsing that. But it's part of his fight with the Anti-Defamation League in the United States and Media Matters and other sort of left or progressive organisations. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I read his comments three times and still couldn't work out what he was saying. So, Well, I just want to tell you, I got I got this in, I don't know, I, I get a lot of publicity releases and so forth. And I was, in one of these, Jack, I was asked to attend a pro-Palestinian, pro-Palestinian rally on my email today. Yeah, the first time that's ever happened. Uh, I get a lot of gumph and nonsense from various various people who want to tell stories. Obviously, in promotion of goods or services that that, that they're hanging a shingle out over. Uh, but this is a new one. Where did that come from? I wonder. Who knows? But yes, I. Well, I'm not going to pay a lot of lip service to unsolicited emails, but it doesn't make me feel that I need to get out in the streets. It's a long walk, anyone. Um, not something I'd be all that keen on. But yeah, what what do we make of the protests around the world, Jack? I think they were, firstly, I think that the first thing I'd say about them is that they are nothing like a majority of public opinion. They are a, a, a very, very noisy minority. But in Australia, for the most part, they're generally well behaved, and we haven't heard the sort of hate speech that that, would, that we saw in the very early days after the Hamas attack. And and, and generally speaking, there, there, there's been this. I mean, I think it's ill-considered, but this focus on finding or agitating for a Palestinian homeland beyond Gaza. No, no, they're not. They're walking along chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That's not advocating for a Palestinian homeland. That's advocating for the eradication of Israel. I I understand that and I've written about it, but that's not all that they're saying. For the most part, I I would say there hasn't been that degree of hate speech from what I've seen, that there has been a sort of agitation around around the Palestinian cause, which is not in itself... And you know, I think there are all sorts of issues with with that, but 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 it's not being hate filled for the most part. Yeah, well, I think uh, if you find yourself marching down Swanson Street or, or Pitt Street, chanting "From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free," have a good look at yourself. Oh, absolutely. And and just to explain, there is an, there is only one Jewish state in the world. There are lots of lots of Christian states and secular states and Islamic states. And, but there's only one Jewish state, and we know where it is. It's between the Mediterranean Sea and the River Jordan. And if that and if that was wiped out, then essentially that would, you know, I don't know whether genocide is the right term, but that would be the eradication of, of a Jewish state, the only Jewish state in the world. And that's why that particular chant is offensive. I find it offensive. But overall, I, 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 and I was watching very closely some of the, some of the behaviour in the Melbourne rally, and it wasn't. It wasn't what I would call an inflammatory rally at all. No, and I got no. I think people should be perfectly free to do that, and they should be perfectly free to chant that. But they ought to be. That means you can be called out on it too, as well. You know, I mean, if you don't, if you don't understand what that means, then your ignorance, your ignorance is astound, is astounding. Um, and if you do understand it, then you know, I think you're very misguided. 
I think that's the problem. There is an ignorance of history, um, even 20th century history, um, and that, that works around the creation of the creation of Israel and uh, and the various conflicts that have occurred uh, since that time. And, and there just doesn't seem to be that degree of understanding. And instead, it sort of forms with you know that it, it does play into that sort of progressive progressive politics that that there is one side who is powerful and the other side is oppressed and therefore we'll get behind the oppressed side and, and without actually wondering how those things actually occur. Mm. Meanwhile, in the real world, apart from where people are marching up and down in the Western world protesting, the Arab states around Israel are rallying to the Palestinian cause. In fact, not even Iran is rallying to the Palestinian cause. To the Hamas cause, well, uh, Iran, Iran supported Houthi rebels have basically grabbed a grabbed a freighter, hijacked a freighter in, in the Red Sea, I believe, mm. today. That's sort of breaking news at the moment. It has some tenuous connection to Israel, and that's been bordered by Houthi rebels. It was part owned by an Israeli. Yeah, I think it's registered in Japan and, uh, and those sorts of things. So, yeah, you're right that the most of the Arab world has... has basically turned its shoulder on the Palestinians. Well, most of, most of the Arab world would like to see Hamas gone. Yeah, that, that, should be their, that should be the objective for everyone. Mm. That, you know, you've got... They, they're certainly not making the lives of Palestinians better, even if you want to go pre the October 7 attack. Um, they're certainly not making lives better. I mean, Hillary Clinton was talking about this again. She hasn't put a foot wrong on this. I mean, Hamas is not in the business of providing community services. Hamas is not in the business of providing the very best hospitals it can have. Gaza itself could be a a, a relatively wealthy state, but instead it's mired in terrorism and and it's only real trade and buying rockets from Iran. Uh, Almost all of its income comes from um, money sent from Western countries. This... You know, Gaza has the opportunity, has the potential for, to be a relatively wealthy state that can provide good services in education, health, sanitation to to the people of Gaza, most of the Palestinians. And as you've said um, previously, Hamas have actually turned around and said, you, you've just got to listen to this stuff. Hamas have actually turned around and said, look, 75% of, uh, of the population in Gaza are refugees. They're not our responsibility. No. And that's and they've been able to say that because the UN's been prepared to pick up the tab for that. Yeah. Okay. The speaker, the new, the newly appointed speaker of the house, newly elected speaker of the house in the United States, Jack, has released some video. Now this is like nine eleven, nine eleven conspiracies, isn't it? Because he's actually asking people to say, look, all the stuff you've seen, you didn't see, and we saw the plane fly into the building. You know, we saw these mugs rioters outside the capital and inside the capital. So now we're being asked to, to be now we're being asked to, to be told because we looked at some limited footage of, of rioters actually behaving themselves and being very gentle as they walk through the Capitol building. I think there's forty thousand hours of footage, isn't it? He's gonna release them all apparently. Yeah. My, my comment about that is putting my lawyer's hat on for a second, this should have been made available to the lawyers of the people who were charged. Well, I've got some got some news for you there. A number of people of those of those charged, in fact there are the numbers vary. You've got something at least seven hundred plus convicted. Hmm. 
and 300 plus jailed, including uh, members of militia groups like Proud Boys and uh, the Oath Keepers, who were in jail for very, very long periods of time, up to 20 odd years and more. I'm not, I'm not saying these videos would have assisted their lawyers or assisted them, um, because I don't know what's in the 40,000 hours of video. Um, what I am saying is that it should have been made available to them and the consequences for where they may. But uh, as a lawyer, you would say, if someone's got this information and you can't get access to it in order to um, see whether it assists your client, that's wrong. Well, of, of the 700 plus, almost all of them pleaded guilty, Jack. Almost all of them have pleaded guilty. Yeah, that's almost everyone pleads guilty of anything in the United States. Yeah. Almost nothing goes to trial in the United States because of the way they yeah. run their prosecution I mean, services. Yeah, look, I understand. I understand plea bargaining. Yeah. Some of some of the people jailed will be giving evidence. It's very likely that they'll be giving evidence because prosecutors have an extraordinary wealth of evidence. Dozens, if not hundreds, of those charged in the riots. Can subsequently con- convicted have pointed squarely at Trump for motivating their conduct. So you'll see some of these people who have been jailed give evidence against Donald Trump in the in the four count indictment uh, in DC. Wilson yeah. might be one who argued unsuccessfully at trial that his decision to maraud through the Senate parliamentarian's office amid the chaos was a direct result of Trump's remarks. Another another convict. From January 6th, Danny Rodriguez, who buried a, a borrowed taser into the neck of DC police officer Michael Fanoni on January 6th, has similarly argued that he was essentially brainwashed by Trump's lies about election fraud. Mm, well, that, that'll fall where it does. Yeah. Buried a borrowed taser into the neck of a DC police officer, Jack. So that's what we saw. We saw it with our own eyes that there might have been some, some quiet trespass occurred in, 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 the, in the Capitol building uh, really shouldn't come as any great surprise. We saw what we saw with our own eyes. The other thing to talk about here, Jack, is with a special counsel, Jack Smith, We've got basically Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's case is going to be uh, that they don't want January 6th mentioned. They're actually they're actually making motions that it shouldn't be mentioned, and I, and I just think there's a fair amount of rewriting of history going on here, and not very credible at that. Yeah, well, it'll fall where it will fall where it does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're entitled to come up with an opinion. I mean, you know, this is this is. I, I think what what some of these characters, also the Jack Smith, there is talk that Jack Smith will seek to prosecute various. Various congressmen and women who were engaging with some of the Jan Six rioters, Jack allegedly, um, and telling them where everything was, telling them where to go to, so that, that we might in fact be looking at a number of people. Hello, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and there'll be a few others uh, who've got some problems there with their with with texts that they were sending to people outside the Capitol building wanting to come in and telling them where everything and everyone was. So that'll be very interesting too. And we've got, well, we've got the former, former, well, not the former speaker, the one, uh, Jim Jordan, who thought he might be speaker. He's got a bit to worry about there too. He could be looking at an indictment himself. All right, moving on. Pro-Palestinians have targeted the DNC, Jack, the California Democrat Convention in Sacramento. Yeah. Uh, and uh, basically shut the whole thing down. And they did the same thing at the Democratic National Committee building in Washington 
Um, and indeed, at the time, there were the, the, the big three Democrat leaders were all inside um, and had to be escorted out. Amongst, the, amongst that large number of other Democrat lawmakers had to be sort of rescued by the police. And yes, okay. Right. A fair bit of comment there from various people. But yeah, this is what happens when, when crowds get very, very open. But moving on now to, and I continue to saying that this is way too early for this kind of polling. President Biden's polling is down to his down to his lowest level, around about forty percent. I must simply remind you, Jack, that if we looked at polling from twenty nineteen, we'd see Trump's figures as low as forty. In fact, they never got much above forty, forty two throughout his entire presidency. So I'm not quite sure what this is supposed to achieve, but anyway. Yeah, it's his disapproval rating that's the problem, I think. Uh, all voters, a strong majorities of all voters approve his handling of foreign, disapprove his handling of foreign mm. policy in the Israel-Hamas war. Where's he going wrong there? I'm, I don't know whether he's gone right or wrong. What, 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 what the polling shows is that particularly young people don't like what he's done. He just turned 81, uh, President Joe Biden, and it really is a bit of a stretch to see how he could be president four years from now um, as a, as an 85-year-old man and just we have to wonder what his faculties would be like at that stage. Yeah, I think I think it's um, David Axelrod, who the, the, the president described as a prick last week because he made a couple of comments. He's the, David Axelrod was the former chief of staff, I think, for President Obama. Um, said that his his assessment is that it's he's a less than fifty fifty percent chance of success. Yeah, I mean, look, these are these are these are fair poor polling figures. It, it, just given his age, don't know how he can improve on those things. Polling can be up and down. By the time um, Obama was finished, he was in the just nudging fifty. Uh, Trump was about forty two. So what I'm talking about, 42% approval rating. Uh, and Biden is just a little bit under that at this stage. I don't know that he's done much wrong. He's had a, a fairly good legislative agenda that he's been able to swing through the Congress, certainly far more than Trump ever was. And and we haven't had any disgraces thus far from the Congress itself that's in a sort of state of a state of uh, of ineptitude and and, uh, and 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 dysfunction, but we haven't had government shutdowns. We haven't had those sorts of issues yet. My concern is how is this man going to be able to be the president of the United States in four years from now? I just don't, I just can't see how that can go. The Democrats, but, Democrats are going back to Chicago. I think for the first time since 1968 for their convention in August next year. That's right. Um, um, uh, there'll be no ab- could be a few surprises, Jack. There'll be no Abby Hoffman on the streets, and and, and there is no longer a Mayor Richard <laughs> Daly. Going, you're going back. Mate. Yeah, there is no longer a Mayor Richard Daly. Richard the second has been and gone since then. Um, but I, I sort of I sort of think there will be a, a bro- there'll be a brokered convention and a deal will be done to find a new candidate in, in August next year. What's happened to Ron DeSantis? Well, let me talk about the premature polling. And it, and it looked like DeSantis was going to learn, knock over Trump. It did, didn't and, it? And become and become. Yeah, this is why polling this far off is often a, a bit of junk. But it did look like he was going to clamber over the top of Donald Trump and become the Republican presidential candidate as of next year. And he's just frozen, hasn't he? 
I, I, I love the description of him as being <coughs> genetically genetically disinclined to smile. He, he really can't smile. And if you ever seen him try to smile, it just doesn't work at all. It's 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 a grimace, not a smile. This, um, this, but, this might be a small thing, but he needs a better some better advisors as to what he should wear. He's very fond of of putting on the uh, working class guy working class. Uh, uh, guy look you know he, he has these kind of like a work shirt with DeSantis on the pocket you know and if you, if you look at the successful candidates for president who actually campaigned Joe didn't have to campaign but Obama and Trump both nice suit white shirt tie in in moments in moments of great relaxation Obama would take the tie off but he still always had the, the suit and the white shirt and that's what people want to vote for people don't want to vote for somebody who looks like he's come to read your gas meter I think you're being mean I think you're being a little bit mean I think it's because the man the man is catastrophically incapable physically of smiling mm. and if you can't smile then you've got a problem I, I, it's he's actually Nicky Halley's actually starting to out polling when we talk about sort of useless polling but but uh, Nikki Haley seems to he's a former South Carolina guy. Yeah, she, not, only, not only is she outpolling DeSantis, but her figures against Trump against Biden are better okay. than Trump's. Looking okay. Just a reminder of Rose when we talk about it too early, it, it, Donald Trump, who won the twenty sixteen election in December of twenty fifteen, was polling at one percent. So these things can these things can change very quickly. How I just want to ask you if we go back to Joe Biden and if there is a firm view within the upper echelons of the DNC, how, how do they how do they go about it? I mean, obviously they're going to tap him on the shoulder, um, but then who do they who do they look to? Uh, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, the the, the 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 person who looks most convincing as a candidate, unfortunately, is a Californian, which is a handicap. Well, very harsh on Californians there, Jack. It can be a handicap. And just to explain how that how that might be a handicap is that Californian values are very different to Midwest values mm. and, uh, and Midwest states. Um, the Michigans, the Wisconsins, the Minnesotas, etc., tend to determine the outcome of elections. Yep. So they look at the Californians like Newsom, who is a very, very capable politician, very good on his feet, speaks well, looks like he'd be a good presidential candidate, but does have that handicap of being a Californian. But we have to move to the United Kingdom now and the, and the woes of another government, and that is the Tories in the UK. Just a, a bit of a look at polling there. They've got an election probably around about this time next year. It can be as late as January, at late January 2025. It might end up going the full distance, Jack, because this is a, this is a dead government walking, isn't it? The, the polling is suggesting that Labor's got 46% of the vote, Tories 22, Lib Dems 11, uh, and then there's a break up there with Greens. So uh, the Scottish National Party 3, REF, what are we talking about there? Who's REF? Oh, I've got forgotten. I've forgotten too, but they're only getting 8% of the vote, so we, they are very forgettable. But uh, that's a 24-point lead uh, going to Labor, um, with the Conservatives going backwards. Labor's vote's sort of fairly static, but the Conservatives continue to go backwards. I mean, so, so that we forget about, we can even forget about what can you do, because it's, they've got nothing to do. They are a dead government walking, and it's a very, very good argument against fixed dates for for, for parliaments, Jack. The, the the reincarnation of David Cameron hasn't helped. It's just what? What were they thinking? What, 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 who in Sunak's office said, hang on, I've got an idea. Let's make David Cameron a peer, a life peer, 
and then we'll 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 make him we'll make him a foreign affairs minister and a secretary for 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 the foreign ministry. I mean, I, I just don't understand it. I, I I really don't understand what was going through their minds. How could anybody think that was a good idea? Yeah. The uh, well, what's it what's it tell Sunak's colleagues? Well, it, it tells them that he doesn't. <laughs> there think, is not one among your number. Yeah. There's not none of you are good enough to do this. Yeah. It's often true, and we probably should explore this a little bit, Jack, that very successful business people who go into politics, and Sunak's a billionaire, of course, the very they go into politics, they haven't got a clue what to do. And it's a completely different culture. And, 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 you know, the old CEO speaks from on high. It doesn't work in politics. And certainly if you're unpopular. It can work both ways. People who've been in politics all their lives end up being rubbish as well. Well, you remember, you know, a man that we that we refer to is when you do a Jack Elliott. That mm. means you know, you're, you're you're pushing, you're, you're relieved to get away, but you're gonna you're gonna push on because you believe you're persecuted and end up losing the lot. Uh, our great mate Jack Elliott uh, was going to become the Liberal Party's new hero back in uh, the days of the Hawke Keating government, Jack, and it just didn't work out, did it? And I don't think the Liberal Party would have to breathe a huge sigh of relief that he never put himself on a ballot. Mm. It's just one example. It is a very good example as to why business people don't always make very good politicians. He is. Uh, uh, the Tories, one prospect of success, very, very slim prospect of success, and, and for the reasons you said before, is I think they're just finished as a government. They're tired, they're worn out, accident-prone. But the Labor Party's got a problem in how, it, in how it's going to manage the Israel Gaza fallout oh, within the United Kingdom. I saw Corbyn's brother. I don't know if you saw a clip of Corbyn's brother, who's not a member of the Labor Party. No. It must be said, no, it's Jeremy, anybody spelled. Um, but uh, the, the brother, uh, Jeremy's brother, was talking about how Hamas, sorry, the attacks on January 7 were not Hamas, they, they were actually Mossad false flags. Yeah. So that's how nutty he is. He's even crazier than his brother. Yeah, it, 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 I, I did see the interview and thought, well, isn't it amazing? Jeremy's the same one of the family. Only, only just. Only just. Um, only just snuck in. 56 Labor MPs, including eight members of the Shadow Cabinet, voted a, for an amendment to the King's speech that the Labor leadership, Keir Starmer, etc., had said was not Labor policy and they had direct uh, members not to vote for this amendment. Uh, that meant that those eight members of the Cabinet had to resign from the Cabinet and that's Labor's problem as time goes on. A significant chunk of the Labor Party uh, is in not just the pro-Palestinian, but sort of pretty much the pro-Hamas camp. Um, and uh, that's going to have to be managed very well. At this stage, I've got to say, Keir Starmer's doing it very, very well indeed. He, For the first time, um, in the, in all the time I've been watching him, he actually now looks and sounds a bit like a Prime Minister. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, look, that, if, if the Tories have one chance, it would be that that Labor implodes yep. over, over Hamas or Gaza. Uh, and because there is a streak of anti-Semitism in, in the party and the far left of the party uh, that, uh, that Jeremy Corbyn was happy to promote for a very, very long time there. And, um, and still is. And, and, well, he's no longer in the party, but but, there, but his influence remains there. That's mm. absolutely right. Me meanwhile, the Australian government have issued one of their travel advisories, mm. uh, which they do from That's time to is. time. And this one's for the UK, uh, which says to exercise a high degree of caution in the UK due to threat of terrorism. Ah, and when was that updated? Do uh, you know? Uh, well, uh, Days, yeah. Just days ago, yes, but yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fairly extreme, isn't it? Did you take... Did you 
did you take a look, or can I have a quick look at, at, at what the at what the warnings might be for France, for example? Uh, no, there wasn't anything for France as far as, far as I'm aware. Okay. Um, this was drawn my wife, who uh, keeps an eye on these it things. It would but be unusual for, for Intel to be so descriptive. But look, I, I guess we need to have a, a little bit of a, of a chat about the, there is now probably a heightened risk of, of Islam. We just talked about Houthi rebels hijacking, hijacking, a, hijacking a ship in the Middle East. And, and we would have to say that there, that there is a, a greater likelihood of Islamic extremist terrorist events. And now, probably for the first time in, 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 in probably five or six years since the, since the, since the defeat of Islamic State, anyway. I think a point needs to be made here. It's not, uh, people keep talking about uh, a big Palestinian vote or a big Palestinian or big Arab support for Palestinians. That doesn't really exist in the West. These are, these are people who are, who are Islamists who are from Islamic countries a lot further away than, the, than, than Syria or Jordan or Egypt or Saudi. Oh, well, look, they will exist in some of those countries. There's no doubt about that. They might exist in places like Lebanon. They might exist in places like Iraq. Uh, They might exist in places like Iran and Afghanistan Mm. as well and in Pakistan, Africa, Jack. Yeah, in parts of Western Africa and Eastern Africa. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to laugh. I just, I just saw the first line here. Liam Gallagher has actually been elected president of, of Argentina, Jack. Well, uh, have you seen this chap? Mate, he is, he is, a, he's a, a man. I've never seen a man more in need of a haircut in my life. He, he looks a lot like Liam Gallagher and he's got a streak of the Liam Gallagher's a nutcase uh, about him as well. So um, uh, he's a bit fond of he's screaming and yelling at people and. Yeah, he's a very, a very strange man. I saw him. Uh, Liam him. Gallagher, I, I can tell you, a mate told me this on Sunday night. It's actually while we're, whilst we're watching the crowd. The Liam Gallagher's actually got a lifetime ban from Cathay Pacific. Yeah, I think I know what that was all over. Mm. So, he doesn't seem to bother him. Um, but look, the president of Argentina is not Liam Gallagher. It's actually Javier Malay. Uh, and he's a sort of far-right, I guess, what would we call him? Small government man. <laughs> he's decided He's decided to, to basically, as a small government libertarian, he's decided to add to it by one in himself. And he's a very unusual, yeah, unusual man. I did see him. He was driving down the street in a rally there with a chainsaw. And the, the election of this, as unlikely as it seems, is just because Argentina is an economic, remains an economic basket case and everyone's tried. So while I, while I don't think the election in Argentina is an embrace of Javier Malay or, in fact, Liam Gallagher, it, it really is a state of we've completely run out of faith and confidence in the political leadership, so we're going to go for praise man with a chainsaw. Yeah, whenever I think of Argentina, I'm reminded of something I read once that at, at the Federation of Australia, Argentina and Australia were um, had very similar economies um, and were, Argentina was perhaps slightly richer than Australia. And 120 years of bad government, this is what you get. Yeah, it's a, it's been a, you know probably worse. I I I, I remember GDP wise going back to my days at university. Though Australia and Argentina are very very similar in terms of in terms of gross domestic product, and then there's just no there's no comparison now. What What's also a, rem- a reminder is that as imperfect as our governance has been for those 120 years, it's been very very good by comparison to similar countries. And, and, and this more broadly, in sort of political scientific terms, this is what happens when the political class fails, that all of a sudden we have 
the weird and the wonderful, and we hope he's not too horrible, but we, we have the sort of weird and wonderful all of a sudden legitimised. Uh, the Trumpsters sent him, sent him, I think it was a tweet. I think he's on the tweets, on the tweets again. Or it might have been from his. Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether he's back on Twitter, is he, or on X, whatever it's called. pat on the back. The whole world was watching. I am very proud of you. Wouldn't you feel good? So Trump's to see that about you. You will turn your country around and truly make Argentina great again. Oh, wow. How did he manage to work that line in there? And, of course, the former resident of Brazil has given him a big rap as well. So, well, what the current one, Luis de Silva, Lula de Silva, who Liam Gallagher, <laughs> Malay refers to as a communist. That'd be actually a rap. I think I think De Silva would like that. And he calls himself. He calls. He, he refers to De Silva as a corrupt communist. De Silva responded by saying, "Democracy is the voice of the people and must always be respected." I wish the next government good luck. No one by name, didn't mention anyone by name. Argentina is a great country and deserves our complete respect. So that's from Brazilian president at the moment. You know, and this is a bit of a phenomenon. This is a bit of a phenomenon, Jack, where politics is deemed to have failed voters. They look for, and we need no, look no further than 2016 in, in the US. They look for the old, they look for someone who is no, who has no political background. Indeed. And it doesn't generally work pretty well. We were just talking about how businessmen can be very, very poor at politics, but it doesn't always work that well. But you you have to understand that when people are in desperate, desperate states economically, they haven't got inflation absolutely out of control in Argentina. And it's been sort of, a, it's been a monster there. Hyperinflation has been a monster that's appeared in Argentina many, many times over the last 30, 40 years. And it's still there. They haven't been able to slay that beast. And that means that, 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 that people generally just, you know, they, they have less money than, than they should have. And so that makes them angry. And then yeah. they turn to people like Malay, who's a climate-denying populist. You'd have voted for him, Jack, wouldn't you? He'd go a bit wrapped when you saw the chainsaw there. But yes, he's a climate-denying populist. That's good. Who's also known by the nickname El Loco, Jack. Has been known by the nickname since he was in his twenties, I think. Yeah, um, because he, he is—he does have a touch of the Liam Gallagher's about his behaviour. <laughs> well, well, gee whiz, have things ever got so bad where you turn around and say, "Look, the only hope for us is Liam Gallagher to run our country"? I don't think so. But anyway, we will keep an eye on Argentina. I wonder if the inflation rate—and I'll get the inflation rate before we wrap up, and we'll see where it is in six months' time. Meanwhile, in Spain, Jack, about 170,000 people marched through Madrid on Saturday in the largest protest yet against an amnesty law, which Spain socialists agreed over Catalonia's 2017 separatist bid in order to form a government. So that so the separatist alliance have have been offered an amnesty, and the rest of the well, not rest, but a good deal of the Spaniards are not happy about it. No, very unhappy, I would say. The demonstration. This is the hundred and seventy thousand people marching through Madrid, shaking a fist at the Catalans in a series of protests. Of course, it took place two days after Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, what a fantastic name that is, won a four-year term with the backing of Catalan and Basque nationalist parties in return for agreeing to the law. Protesters, many waving Spanish flags and holding signs that read Sanchez traitor and don't sell Spain straight against the law 
which four judicial associations, opposition political parties and business leaders said threatens the rule of law and the separation of powers. So we had people convicted, just to be clear, we had people convicted of, shall we say, disruptive behaviour, um, calling for the separation from Spain of the Catalan, and that includes Barcelona, doesn't it, Jack? Yeah. And, and- and, 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 and when, they were, when they were out in the streets themselves, there was a fair bit of setting fire to things and what have you, uh, and a bit of argy-bargy with the Spanish army and police, and they've all been, uh, they've all had those sort of convictions quashed and amnesties provided. Yes, it, this is sort of one to keep an eye on. It's a, a good bit to play out here, I would think. Yes, it is. And Spain's got a number of issues around separatism, including in, including the Basque, Basque area of Spain, northern Spain, and also, of course, the Catalans uh, to the east. Now, Jack, well, it wouldn't have been so late for you. You're about three hours behind us here. I, I have to say I watched it all, uh, the World Cup final and the magnificent ground there, the Modi Stadium. Uh, 130,000 predicted. It ended up only being at 95, but still a huge crowd just drawn to a silence. An ominous silence as the Australians basically just played all over India. It was probably the best feat of captaincy I've seen from an Australian captain. Um, you know, in just in a one-off, a one-off instance, by G captain the side well. Um, Twenty-two. I was just thinking. Changes. I was watching it and thinking, well, what do you do when you're facing the, the, the easily the best team in the tournament? You win the toss. You have a bowl. Uh, you watch them get off to a great start. Uh, after 10 overs, they were, was it eight, eight and over after 10 overs? Yeah, near enough. That was 70 odd, yeah. yeah. And, and then, then there are just four or five boundaries in the next 40 overs. Well, he bowled his 10 overs, didn't concede one. Mm. That's, that's Pat Cummins. Mm. There were 22 bowling changes over the 50 overs. In, in, in overs 12, 14, 16, 18, and 20, there were bowling changes. So, so you basically had one bloke just bowling over. Yeah. And that's really, really hard to do. And then when we, when we look at Rohit Sharma's captaincy, and I'm a huge fan of Rohit Sharma, his captaincy was dull by comparison. The fielding was the other thing. And, Good fielding, as they say, is contagious. But the, the Australia's fielding was, as, I think, in, in the 35th over, they conceded two overthrows in successive balls. And other than that, it was almost perfect. And well, then- I, I, I watched the first bit of it at, at my local pub. Uh, and there was a couple of blokes there. And David Warner, what looked like a certain four, he managed to run it down. And he's, what, in his mid-30s, David Warner? 37, mate. Yeah, 37. 37. And, um, you know, that's... Uh, that's that's, that's in cricket terms, that's a septuagenarian. So. And, and Pat, the manager, was over talking to a table full of blokes who said, well, you know why the Australians are so fit and they're so lithe and lean and, and agile? It's because they've been in India for a month um, eating the Indian food, you know, and they've all lost weight. And, and I said, oh, I yeah, said that, that, that's a pretty terrible thing to say. Pat said, they're all from Mumbai. They're allowed to say that. <laughs> this is this is basically, you know, it was always that we can't win there now. It's, it's one of those, we've only won, I think, one test series in India over the last 20 years. But they, India is not daunting anymore for the Australian cricket. Yeah, I, I, personally, I think that the Indians will look at this as one they let slip, and I think that's right. Oh, they looked, they definitely did. They were our captains, so that's the first thing. They were our captain, they were our bowl, and and when it came to the, to the batting, well, Travis Head just 
did it magnificently and had the had Marcus Labuschagne down the other end who who was just that sort of safe pair of hands or a safe safe straight bat um, just working the ball around. Um, it was a stellar performance, and I, I don't think and I, and a lot of people have been very 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 happy about it. But it it it, it really stands for me one of the best Australian performances in in one game in a one off game that I've seen. Well, the important thing is the Australians held their nerve. The Indians didn't hold theirs. That's why I think they let it slip. Um, if you saw the look around the crowd and the players and the dressing room after Coley was uh, chopped on uh, for 50-odd, uh, they, they never looked like winning after that because they'd all dropped their heads. They didn't hold their nerve at all. Yes, look, the skipper came out and blasted the ball around a bit and that's basically been his role. When we looked down across the batting... Oh, when I saw Surya Kumar bat, who is a magnificent player, huge shots, three sixty, you know, can hit the ball over the keeper's head, he can hit, and 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 all parts around the ground therein. He's just a magnificent player, and he looked like a Thailander. He looked like he just, you know, barely knew which which end of the bat to hit the ball with. <laughs> and, and yeah, and that, that really staggered me because they batted him at seven, and it's like that's. I haven't quite got it right there. Hats off to Virat Kohli, who had a magnificent, magnificent tournament. And, and, and India, too, had not, nine wins on the trot. But they came up against a really steely Australian side. You know, and one bloke who hasn't received any credit is, they call him right, um, the, the coach, or the, 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 the head coach. We might remember, I'm just trying to remember his name. They call him Ronnie McDonald. I was going to say Ronnie and, McDonald. Andrew, Andrew McDonald. Andrew, of course. He's a wankerata boy, isn't he? I think he is, yeah. And, and Andrew McDonald as the head coach. We might remember all the brouhaha when, when Justin Langer was sort of not re-signed and, and the Australian cricketers said, well, you know, what we want really is a sort of coaching forum that we can call upon rather than a head coach or rather than a coach and then a few minions underneath him. And that's kind of worked, you know. It, it was, really the, it was the biggest. And I think Andrew McDonald deserves a huge amount of credit. It was the biggest thing since Gov Whitlam was dismissed, uh, Justin Langer going. It really was. And of course, people were calling Pat Cummins Captain Woke and all this sort of stuff. And you, I, I actually saw a few comments in the Australian underneath the, the report of the triumph, the Australian triumph, and I continue and go, well, he's still a terrible captain. And you go, did you watch the game? Do you understand how this worked? It was seriously the, the best fleet of captaincy I've seen in in a one in one game from any Australian Test cricketer. Full stop. Any Australian captain. Full stop. It was awesome how how he did it when the toss and bowlers you saw, and, and then worked the bowling through. So so batsmen never really got settled. Kept taking wickets. Brilliant fielding. All sort of contagion around good leadership. And, and then Travis Head came and, well, he just goes straight in. He, Travis Head goes straight into being the, he goes straight into the, the Hall of Fame just on that, doesn't he? Uh, well, if you, if you pop that alongside the 120 odd he scored in the first innings of the World Test Championship earlier this year, yes. Well, that's, that's what they've done. They won the World Test Championship. They've held the Ashes and now they've won the World Cup. So they've done extremely well. Yes, and, uh, and a great and a great feat of strategy. Now, Rugby Australia, Jack, is it in disarray? I think Hamish McLennan, the CEO... Um, uh, McLennan was the chairman until Sunday. Yeah, chairman of uh, Rugby Australia. Uh, they had about 
a thousand Zoom meetings and then they had one and last one and, and he was the only bloke who voted for himself, so he's gone and he's replaced by Dan Herbert, Jack. Yeah, the former Wallaby. Former Wallaby, yeah. I mean, yeah. it doesn't look that bad. I did notice that the, I mean, I think overall if we sort of analyse it, it's not that bad for rugby. They're not going to turn into lacrosse over in a, in a hurry, but at the same time, um, they've got some massive problems. I, I did yeah. notice... Twiggy Forrest and his wife have been involved in, and I've actually weighed in with a substantial chunk of money, but they're, they're, they were consulting broadly with the board on, on the best ways for it. Yeah, one of our listeners was on the WhatsApp machine uh, over the weekend, and he says that, that their problem is that the most successful Super Rugby franchise, which is the Brumbies, and the currently best financially managed one, which is the Reds, Queensland, don't trust... Um, the Rugby Australia or McLennan, and and that's a problem. My problem with that is that I can't find a successful, thriving sport anywhere in the world that's still run by its constituent clubs or states or whatever they are. Yeah, and the um, and and until until rugby fixes that, I think the rest of it's papering over the cracks. Yeah, and 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 what that does, it'll just breed sort of eternal feuds. You'll never have a vision for the game if it if it conflicts with where the, the clubs are and, and their narrow objectives and, and ambitions. And that's why, you know, it'll be, be like running um, the AFL, essentially just beholden to all the clubs and just wouldn't work. You can't uh, well, it, it would be entertaining. Imagine the stoush between West Coast and Collingwood, say, you know, the, 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 the big powerhouse clubs. Yeah. And- it doesn't advance your sport. It doesn't advance your code. No, it doesn't. That's the problem, yeah. All right, take us out with something, Jack. Um, just, I mean, one, just, one, just one small thing that caught my, caught my eye on Twitter this week. We have reached a point where the far left hates J.K. Rowling but loves Osama Bin Laden. Yeah, that was odd, wasn't it? I did write about it. That on Friday, it was just an astonishing thing. And again, we look at, we, we talk about this. Part of the problem I, I, I'm going to tell you, Jack, is there is, there is no sense of history. But if you can't even go back to, to 2007, you can't even go back to, sorry, no, you can't even go back to, to 2001, you've got a problem. I mean, people embracing, embracing Bin Laden's letter to America was just the, the most extraordinary thing I've ever heard of, and, and there were there were youngsters walking, walking, doing their little TikToks, just going, "Well, I've never seen that letter before." And by gee, now that I've read it, it makes a fair bit of sense. Hey, mate, this, this this guy killed three thousand of your own people. Yeah, we don't have but, you know, we don't we don't have TikTok here. I mean, it's not allowed in the in the special but it's area of Hong Kong. Thing, Jack, I didn't I, I didn't know that. I didn't know you have, you can't have TikTok in in Hong no, Kong. No, 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 TikTok doesn't work in Hong Kong. Um, well, it doesn't work in the Australian government, of course. Either you can't load if you get a government phone, you can't load the TikTok. TikTok. People will tell you that we're living in under tyranny here in Hong Kong, and I and I heard this from a friend who'd just been back in Australia for. Uh, for some business meetings last week, and he was assured this was the case. He says, "Well, I live there. This is not actually true." He says, uh, "You know, they thought that we they thought we didn't have Facebook or Google or anything. Like that. Of course, we've got them all except for TikTok, and that's that's no bad thing." 
I think just to rub a little bit of salt into that, Jack, there, it was been Hong, a Hong Kong, I don't know, a citizen, but a, a sort of Hong Kong, not an expat. He's just been arrested in Australia with a Sydney man with enormous amount of methamphetamine. And so he's looking very, so stop exporting your criminals to this country, please. <laughs> very fine criminals and we don't want to see them unseated. All right. That takes us out. We're just on finishing time anyway, so we've done very, very well to get through all of that today. Uh, well done, Jack. Thanks for your uh, thank you for your abusions today. And we just want to remind our listeners. I've got a very, very kind note. I'll read this out to you, Jack. If 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 Twitter's working and and it wasn't before, um, yes, it's continuing to do it. So I can't read read out a comment from from one of our readers who said. He said he finds it challenging because he doesn't agree with either of us. But we'll get that column. We'll get that comment out. But we do want to just say, look, drops a line. Uh, if you've got comments, criticisms, death threats, anything you like, uh, drops it's a, a line. It's a, it's a shame that we're not all in the same jurisdiction because he sounds like the sort of bloke we'd like to have a beer with. That's right. No, he's a good fellow. He's, he's, he follows our podcast and the conditional release program and, and, and other things. So I'll give you his name later. But right now when I click on notifications or messages uh, in Twitter, it, it just basically backs out, backs out a new, a new, a new, a new page. So if things are not working all that well, Elon, at the moment. Um, but yeah, look, just drop us a line as and much maligned X, formerly known as Twitter. Um, you can drop drop me a line on at Jack the Insider. You know, DMs are always open, and you get hold of Hong Kong Jack on his Substack. Give it to me, Jack. Yeah, HongKongJack.substack.com. All right, we're using a new interface today, so we're a little bit nervous. We'll see how these files all work and if they're going to be a beautiful thing and, and out to you for your listening pleasure over the next couple of days. Thanks, listeners, once again, and we'll speak to you next week. See ya. I don't know how to stop it. There we go.